good to be home. I've missed you guys, and I'll explain why I'm not here anymore. Um, I'm a little bit nervous about this because I have a spiritual story that is not ex terribly exciting. You know, I don't, I've never had that Damascus Road experience that so many people do. I've never had that mountaintop thing that is a whole lot more entertaining than what I'm going what I'm to talk about. But uh, um, my history with Otter Creek is I joined Otter Creek in 1981 over on the old location. I think there were 300 of us. I still have this. Uh, 300 of us. Um, a few years ago, my parents, who have since lost, lost their ability to drive to church, and they were going to Brentwood Hills. So I started taking them, this was a couple of years before COVID. I wanted to bring them here, but the last experience my, my very conserved dad had had with Otter Creek was watching liturgical dancers go down the aisle. And you remember those. <laughs> it was, I don't know, Christmas Eve. So I have, <laughs> I have not, uh, I wanted to come back to Otter Creek, but my problem is I got very involved with a class at uh, Brentwood Hills for mentally challenged adults. And that is a wonderful story in itself, and I just refuse to give it up. And, and uh, Otter Creek's times at the present do not match and jive with my, my class time. So otherwise, I, I love this place and would love to be back. Uh, they named the class Best Class Ever, BCE, in case that gives you some idea. Um, my spiritual experience, I was born a Campbellite. I was born, my father was, my grandfather knew Hardiman and Freed and all that sort of thing. My mother was uh, Southern Baptist. She believed, though, that parents should be together religiously, although I remember her baptism when I was five years old. I thought they were drowning her. I just didn't quite understand what was going on. So it's been, I, I've been there from the beginning, so to speak. Um, I, had, I, I had an experience when, again, when I was five years old, we lost a, um, a dear puppy of mine, and the, and the man next door buried Tipper, I think was his name, in the backyard because Daddy wasn't going to be home for a few hours and we needed to do something with the dog. Well, Daddy came home and I was staring out the backyard, and he said, what are you, he said, what are you doing, Dad? And I said, well, I'm waiting for Jesus to come get Tipper. So I, I think it's one of those things um, in my DNA, but also at that point I was beginning to develop some kind of spiritual, mystical sense, I call it, with God. Um, I was baptized at age 16 after my younger brother and sister. There were some people that were real worried about my age of accountability. <laughs> and finally, during a summer campaign, and if you've been around long enough, you remember those things. Um, I, I, I don't want to say it was because I had a crush on one of the young workers, but who knows, that happened. Um, I worked at Camp Shiloh after my junior and senior year, and this is part of the spiritual development, I think, that became, that became a, a birthmark for me. Um, at Shiloh then, and it still is, working with underprivileged kids from New York City. And um, getting to understand what was going on, that, that kind of is a theme that led me to room in the end, quite frankly. It, same sort of thing. Um, and while, while I was there, I met a lot of people from Lipscomb, students, and they were so normal. Because my parents, despite their Campbellite background, thought of our Christian schools as reform schools. I didn't need to go to reform school. So um, I met them, I liked them, uh, played to f I applied to a few other places, and much to the chagrin of my guidance counselor, who at that time was in New Jersey, very progressive, I didn't go to Douglas or Rutgers or Emory or some others, but came to Lipscomb. Lipscomb had an impact on me, kind of a mixed impact. I was there when the administration, I think, was more interested in church than God. And I'm being very critical and honest in some of this, so turn the recorder off. <laughs> um, 
But I also, again, that birthright started. I started volunteering for something called PAL, Play and Learn. Every Saturday morning we go and uh, help kids at the Belmont Church in their basement before the, all the new stuff was built um, from kids from the Edge Hill area. Um, so I did that. I also was exposed at that time to Don Fento, as was early in his career, and his theology that seemed to go so much further than what I was getting. And, and I had some great Bible classes there, don't, don't misunderstand me. Um, much further than what I was getting um, otherwise. In fact, on graduation, I swore I would never come back to Nashville and never come back to that university. I did both, so <laughs> never say never, and I'll talk about it. I did come back to Lipscomb. I retired from Lipscomb, and uh, my, my last gig in my career uh, was at Lipscomb in, in marketing communication. I loved it, and I loved the university. I, to me, it's a very much more spiritual university than the one I went to when I was there. Um, so um, that's it. Uh, I retired, so not terribly exciting, but I thought I would talk about some things as I tried to think how to approach this. Some lampposts and some markers along the way, um, and some learnings and some things that I think are kind of accurate. Um, one, I'm still intentionally a part of the Church of Christ. It's a decision for me for a lot of reasons. But in order to do that, I had to get over the who's right theology we had. It basically became who's right, you're wrong, who's right, we're right. And that just seemed to miss so much. Now, again, we were people of the book, so I learned a lot of scripture because of my background and treasure that. Learn more at Lipscomb and treasure that. But the application of it was beginning to bother me, so I had to get over that part of it. Um, and that's, in large part, the nails in the coffin on that was probably Room in the Inn. Room in the Inn was the first ecumenical movement in Nashville, I think. If it wasn't the first, all congregations came together. Um, Christian, Jewish, uh, Muslim. Um, and I'm gratified to say that the first two chairmen of the board of Room in the Inn, when Father Strobel finally got it organized enough, uh, were both in Churches of Christ. Jim Olive, and I was the second. And uh, I remember I would speak for the room in the end, and I would be speaking at evening worship services at other, other denominations, thinking, couldn't do this at Otter Creek. At that time, you couldn't. So there was some real learning there that, uh, um, that I appreciate. Um, I worked closely with Father Strobel, Charlie Strobel, who we just lost. Um, and you don't, being near him changes you. Some of you have had that privilege, um, and his total embracing of any soul that walks up to him, especially those who can't feed themselves, can't find shelter. And uh, he's the one that started Rumini, if you're not uh, familiar with it, in 87, I believe. Um, and then, uh, and I want to talk more about Rumini later if you want to, but, and we had some great teachers. Remember Doug Davis? Doug Davis had this really bad habit, according to my mother, of leaving ideas hanging in the air and not saying at the end of the class, that's wrong, this is what's right. Again, we're back to this, this almost, uh, this confrontational type theology. Doug was great. Terry, I loved. They were, you know, we just had, I just had a lot of great teachers here and I miss that now. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, I clearly learned that faith is not a contact sport or competition in the sense that one person wins just because the other person is wrong. Um, it is about embracing 
Father Strobel taught me that, and serving. Again, Father Strobel and a lot of people in this room, the Collins, for instance. So, um, okay, things that I think about now. Um, at this point in my life, sin doesn't bother me so much. <laughs> That's a spiritual marker for me because I've discovered everybody has it. And when you realize that, I've learned that the humility that comes, there's a humility that comes out of knowing you're hiding something and so is everybody else. As you deal with people you don't agree with, as you deal with things on the streets, that sort of thing, um, sin doesn't bother me so much. Uh, and I will say this with apologies to the prayer warriors here who have the gift of prayer, which I don't. Um, I believe answered prayer is not all that relevant and doesn't testify to the power of prayer enough. Prayer is its own power, whether it's answered or not. Prayer is not about being transactional. It's about keeping in touch, keeping up the conversation with God, uh, even when you're not necessarily in the mood. I've been, you know, as all of you have through the years, when God was a long way away. Well, I still will say, listen, I don't understand why you're doing this, and we're going to have a conversation when I get to heaven. But I still, because of that, believed in heaven, believed that I would meet Jesus. So that's, uh, I know that's uh, um, not exactly what you hear in a lot of our Bible studies and conversation, but the power of prayer, and a lot of you have prayed very hard for things that, that were not answered. And I don't like... I, realize I, go, I don't like the excuse we give God that, well, God answered the prayer, it was just no. So sometimes that's why my concept of prayer has shifted some. Um, you, can, you can rightfully say probably I had to make that shift in the judgment because I had some, some pretty major prayers that were never answered, and I'm not going to go to I don't believe in God because my prayers were not answered. We can talk about that more if you want to. Um, I, along the same line, I have come to deeply believe that faith, by definition, requires doubt. Thank God. It just does. Um, I, know some, I know some faithful giants in this room who I uh, think have had severe doubt several times in their life, but they have learned that means that faith requires doubt. And that really eased a lot for me, a lot of tension over the years. Um, I've got some doubt right now, but thank God we'll, we'll do this. Along that line, I get a little troubled when I hear theology, and I'm going to read some of this to make sure I'm saying it right. When I hear theology that seems to hold up faith as a get-out-of-jail-free card, a lot of you have been through some awful things. You're not, faith doesn't protect you from that. But I hear, uh, I have a little coaster in my office that says, when you're going through hell, just keep going. And that's what faith is. When I'm going through hell, I can just keep going. Um, in fact, I said, if there was no God, I'd have to invent him. Was that Mark Twain that said that? If there wasn't God, we'd have to invent him. Um, because faith is not first and foremost. I think sometimes when I hear the, some people talk about it, it, it is this glass, glass column that protects you from everything coming at you kind of. You know, those little things we put on plants sometime to make them look cloches. Mm -hmm. All that does is create an echo chamber for you, for me, inside my little glass shell. And I think that is something I've tried to be aware of. Again, Rumini and help me with that. Um, faith is what frees us to connect to the mystery of the universe, claim peace when there is no peace, embrace unembraceable people, 
and most important, gets you closer to the moreness of God, not the limited parts of God. I just throw that out there. And speaking of echo chambers, this is one thing I've noticed in the last few years. I spent my life in communication, marketing, that kind of thing. I'm very concerned how we talk to the unchurched about what we're doing. We have come up with our own code, our own language. Um, you know, even in Nashville, when steeples used to define the, the, the skyline, not, not skyscrapers, the church and many people of deep faith have, have we've developed a kind of Christian speak. And I, I hear it because I'm dealing with people that are not Christians, don't even want any part of it. Um, but phrases like the mantra, and again, I, I hope I don't hurt anybody's feelings, but our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you've heard that over and over again. To say that to an unchurched person, to someone who's never had an experience of God, is kind of an empty, weird thing. Um, you remember Guide Garden Direct? <laughs> didn't, it didn't communicate much to me, and I think all that's gone. Um, you just need to have more faith and everything will be okay. You know, faith is not something you can measure. Faith is, if anything, you measure it by doubt, kind of, I guess. Um, Here's another one I've loved, especially in my earliest. You can't be lonely if you have Jesus. Oh, yeah, you can. <laughs> Intensely. And it doesn't take away from the Lord's power over you, with you. Um, I try to explain this red devil Satan to someone who is a secular person. It just doesn't work. And the one I love, um, try to explain the word salvation or even the need for it to today's nonbelievers. We usually come, you know, I can save your soul, bring the, we've got to find, and I'm not, I haven't gotten this one cracked. I'm, I'm just throwing this out here as a thought. Um, but I think we have a lot of Christian speak that puts off people that might come into the fold. Um, I, one other way I described it is I think we have a bit of our own Tower of Babel moment. You know, Tower of Babel goes in, we, we're talking about something. And, and this, this message is so legitimate and so eternal, but our language isn't understandable in the marketplace. Um, now, I believe people like Landon Saunders, Josh, Lee Camp, some of the people sitting in this room have gone a long way towards that. So a lot of this is just me learning that, that, that Christian message without Christian speak. So that is something that has bothered me in the last few years. Finally, and then I can talk a little bit about ruminant or whatever you really want to talk about. Um, probably my spiritual learning and my life learning, uh, the, probably the thing I've held the longest in my life is the motto, nothing lasts. Bad times don't last, but neither do good times. This is just life. Nothing lasts. I, I, if I have a tombstone, right now I won't. I'll have a cremated, cremated remains. But if I had a tombstone, I'd want that on my tombstone. Um, and that is, I think, a corollary to, to whatever state I am therein to be content. Maybe it's a shorter way of saying that. Now, I don't know if that's what you want to hear. A lot of you, a lot of you don't know about Room in the Inn at Otter Creek. Um, I'll just talk a little bit about the beginning and so you know what I'm talking about when I do Room in the Inn. I was in a recording session. I, I worked in advertising and PR and that sort of I was in a recording session and the talent and the name just went away. I envy Paul at her memory. The name of the guy just went away, you know. And he was talking about something he just run into about his church doing this concept. And this is a hallmark of Otter Creek. So I went back to the elders. I have no idea, I don't remember who I talked to, and said, you know, this is a great idea. 
And this was an, uh, an idea that bubbled up from the membership. This happens over, it did when I was here, over and over and over again in Otter Creek. Things that bubble up. Sandra and Jerry, you know about uh, Wayne Reed. Go forth and be brilliant. And that's what they let me do. So we got it started. And I'll never remember, uh, it was, I think it was a Wednesday night, maybe it was a Sunday night, you know Ron Collison. Dear man, dear man. Um, Ron Collison put down the carpet at the old building. I guess they've replaced the carpet by now because this would have been a lot, a lot of years ago. He got up and was trying to explain to everybody what we were starting. And finally he just said, this is crazy, Debbie. You know more about it than I do. And made me come up and talk to the group. And uh, that was, it was never a problem. And we had some elders that really were dragging their feet about it. Um, I'm not going to name them because they came around so fast. And the same elder that was dragging his feet about it was the one that insisted we build showers so that our guests could have a place to take a shower. Service changes you, even when you're old. Um, so we did. And um, I think Ruby in now is 87, I can't do the math, 35, 36 years old. It has continued. Uh, there's a downtown program, which we were involved with. Uh, room, downtown, uh, they have a year-round residential program now. Um, classes, all sorts of things that came out of Father Strobel. And if you've heard his story, the way he started doing it was he was at Holy Name Church. He was the uh, pastor there. And he, all he had was peanut butter and jelly sandwiches to have the, the old homeless people who come to his door and was hungry. And then you got the idea, we've got these facilities in town that are empty most of the time, and that's what happened. Uh, Otter Creek is still involved with it. Brentwood Hills is still involved. It's still very ecumenical. They took a hit during COVID because congregations couldn't bring people into their buildings safely. So they really struggled through COVID. Um, and I'm now involved downtown with some kind of interesting things going on. Um, but I, I rarely get involved with room in the end that I don't come away with a spiritual experience. I remember the first night here at Otter Creek, uh, spending the night and the blankets off, that's what we're saying, um, in the old, in the old, uh, what do we call fellowship it then? Fellowship yeah, fellowship hall. hall. And uh, I came home and I walked in my house and the first smell I, I smelled was lemon, lemon oil polish. And I said, I've got to do a study on faith and sense in scripture. Where, what, you know, what, things like that. Um, I'm doing now, uh, I'm participating in a program where we, uh, well, it used to be a foot clinic. We used to have a doctor there who, who has since not been able, had to stop. And they, they asked me, Debbie, would you come and help with the foot clinic? Well, okay, fine. It's on Tuesday mornings. And, and what the foot clinic is now is we give homeless men pedicures. We don't, we don't do any, I don't, I'm not a medical person. Uh, we, if we see problems, we, we refer them to downtown clinic. But you can have a lot of spiritual experience. It, it gave new meaning to me about Jesus washing the apostles' feet. Um, washing dirty feet, washing, cutting nails. That, um, and for the most part, it's fine. I mean, there have been a couple times where I, I would sit there and go, Debbie, you have no right to get sick right now. <laughs> the, the dirt was that bad. These people are stronger. And I remember thinking that when Ruminine started. I came away saying, Lord, I know why you placed me here, because if you had placed me on the streets, I wouldn't have survived. I'm not as strong as they are. And um, I don't mean to make homelessness, homelessness a, noble, a noble thing, but there are things there that they deal with and put up with that I have learned from. Um, 
lot from. So, uh, I, you told me 30 minutes. <laughs> so interesting. Oh. So, I, do you have any questions? I, I just really didn't know how to approach this because I know some people in this room who have had wonderful spiritual experiences and moments where they can, my sister, if you know my sister, she can point to her Damascus Road experience and it was incredible and it was deep and it continues. Um, but her older sister was always, my mother told me I was born an old soul. And I probably, I, I think that's probably true. She said eventually people will catch up with you, but I was an old soul from day one. Um, I don't know why I mentioned that. Now I am an old soul, so we finally grew right into it. So, Do you have any questions about Rue in the end, or want to push back on anything that I didn't explain well enough? Or Were you here when Charlie spoke to the congregation? Um, I about, could have been, yeah. About his mother? Yeah. Well, I knew the story. Uh, and, and if you don't know that story, Mary Catherine Strobel was found dead in the trunk of her car one day and he found her and he went through you talk about going through some crises of faith um, that that affects you <laughs> um, but uh, and and they found out I think it was some kind of vagrant or guy who escaped, escaped from mental I don't know what it was I just never asked him I didn't want to know um, the last few months of his life I was one of the people privileged to sit with him in his room and I was looking at some stuff and that that did affect him more than even I realized um, but that never stopped him from looking at a homeless person straight in the eyes and they knew immediately their value. They knew immediately their value and the love from that man. I can't do that. I still can't do that because I'm afraid they'll ask me something or, you know, <laughs> that I can't answer. But I'm closer to Fa uh, Father Strobel than I think I... And, and did any of you go to his funeral? Oh, it was a funeral for the books. It was great. Jerry, you went? I've got it recorded on my iPhone. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this was a man that had governors, mayors, and poor people speak at his funeral. It was really quite, anyway, I don't mean to, this is not about him, but, um, and if anybody wants to get involved with Room in the Inn, I'm not, this is not an, I think you have to come out of your own service, birthright or birth, birthmark, but um, like Sandy has done with young children and uh, so many other people in this room helping her. Debbie, I think uh, Lee Camp had an interview that it's easily accessible if you want to know more about him. Yeah. He was a man, and some of y'all jump in that knew him, he was a man that defined humility. If you met him, you knew you had met a humble soul, but a noble soul. It was humility that did not make him milk toast. It was humility that made him strong. Uh, the angriest I've ever been at a human being was Charlie Strobel. I have never had the experience where I feel anger coming up from my feet into my face. And it's when we were having a board meeting and he wanted to start the guest house. Um, and still, to, well, back then, if we, we did not send people who were under the influence out to churches, but what do we do with them? Uh, the police will take them and put them in jail. That was the only alternative. So he started the guest house so that when we had those people, we had a place there that we could put them, that at least get them through the night. And, you know, we were having enough trouble convincing churches of what we were doing. But, and I cannot remember now exactly what it was. And I'm sitting here going, I'm about to scream at this man of God. <laughs> so we were trying to figure out the finances and all this. And Charlie was being his usual, 
we got to do it. We'll figure out how later. So, and Jerry, you may have had an experience with that, some with him. I haven't been on, they still have board, and I haven't done that in a lot of years. It got to where job stuff, I, I couldn't do it, but, uh, but they still have, and I think I'm hearing rumors that after COVID, they had to quit doing the women's program. Um, I'm hearing rumors that this year uh, we will have women again, but we've got to find the congregations that can deal with women taking them. Um, and that's real near and dear to my heart because if you think the streets are rough on men, women, you just, you're lucky to survive it. So I'm hoping that that does come back on board, either for the winter program. Now, during the day, they can stay at the downtown location. Um, I don't know, I'm talking about something you may not know about. The, uh, the Campus for Human Development is what it's called. And if you're going on 8th and you go under the railroad underpass, just before you get down there, you take the first right and you'll see a four or five story building there that is the campus from human development built from the ground up. Uh, the first floor is where we do the shelter program. The second floor is classes, art classes, all kinds of stuff. Um, and then the third, fourth, maybe a fifth is residential. A lot of veterans there, you have to qualify for that. And it's not permanent housing, but it is longer term than you know, 30, 60 days. Um, and they have, they have responsibilities they have to do if, if they're not working. A lot of homeless people work. It's just not anymore, um, you know, working at McDonald's doesn't, doesn't get you off the streets. So uh, it's a fascinating program. Could you tell us a little bit about Jim and Beth Ollie, about their <clears throat> Well, and Jim, Jim comes from a very, Jim is a, it was a minister at um, Jackson, Jackson Park. That's a pretty conservative congregation. I mean, very conservative congregation. And he, I think, was very courageous, but they came right along with him. Um, there was something about room in the end that congregate, you know, theology aside, everybody agreed, we need to help take care of these people. It wasn't a huge argument with most of the churches. In the early days, I loved it, there would be small congregations and all they had to offer was the pews. So we'd have homeless people sleeping on the pews. Or maybe they couldn't do food so they would partner with other congregations, very small ones. Um, you saw a lot of that going on. And I think that cross-pollination is a hallmark of room in the end in terms of um, you know, what you learn. and. Okay, Jim, you're supposed to yell lies, lies, all lies. The woman speaks truth. I've known Jim a long time. We actually used to do theater together. He, he was doing the light and I was stage managing. Um, the worst stage managing call of my life happened when Jim was at the light board. So I, <laughs> I didn't want to think about it. Um, anything else about, there's a lot of Otter Creek stories. I. Um, yeah, I, the only reason I haven't come back is, is because of best class ever. And I also would say, I will do an ad for them. If you have somebody of faith that wants their child in a church, in a community, um, come on over and, and it's, I'm missing it this morning. That's a compliment to you guys. Um, so do you, Art, has the room in the end brought a lot of people to God, do you think, or? I think that's a good question, yes. Um, uh, people from the streets. Now, is it 80%? No. Um, 
I remember getting a letter from Marcus. Marcus was here the first year or so, and some of you may have remembered him. He was a blowhard, he was great, he was funny. And he wrote me a letter, and, and Father Strobe said, I know I was a pain in the neck, but I want you to know I saw Christ in you. You know, I, conversion in my mind is great, but I, these people are facing so much. I want them to know that at the lowest point of their life, there was somebody that could look them in the eye and respect them, give them something to eat. Um, a lot of y'all have, have been involved with it. And just coming, even if you're not overnight sleep, just coming and visiting with them. Yes, we keep them, get them off the streets so they don't get harmed, but the power is in, when, as in Father Strobel, his power is in the hospitality, mm -hmm. the talking to them. Um, talking to them, not even know if you're going to do any good or not, fine. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Why are, why are women not? I ask that question. Uh, one of the reasons is because they don't have enough congregations who will accept women at night. We did, when I was here, um, we had one simple rule, whether you're married or not, I don't care what your status was, you, <laughs> you had to keep three tiles between every mattress upstairs. <laughs> and the floor gave three tiles, and that's what we did. And it worked out okay. Sometimes I could, and, and here, it's great. I mean, you're, you've got the little, cubicles. Um, I, I have no idea whether Otter Creek is doing women now or not, but that was one of the problems. So they didn't have enough churches, number one, through COVID, and they regaining congregations that will accept women into shelter was another problem. A lot of women on the streets. Not, I mean, fewer, much fewer than men. I mean, at least because if you've ever donated for him in the end, you're part of that building, that campus for human development. And there's a place where they can come down and, and be in a class. They don't, uh, they get points for being in classes, especially if you're a resident, you get points. And one of the ways, and if you want to get involved, I think of you a lot in the Christmas market, um, you can use your points to spend them in the Christmas store. So what room in the end does is, those who have done things around the building, gotten points, they can spend them. They come in and choose gifts for their children or grandchildren. And then room in the end will mail them. So you're, you're talking at a dad or a granddad that's never been able to shop for a toy for their child. They pick what they want, we don't, you know, whatever they want, and they don't have to worry about getting it mail. So that's something at Christmas time if you want to donate toys. I know Hobby Shop is, I guess, still doing that? Yeah, and that's uh, really meaningful when a child who hadn't seen the dad and been on the street gets a package that, with a little note in it and says, I hope you enjoy this. So that's another little thing that Ruben the Inn does. Uh, they, they are always looking for somebody to teach classes on any topic, any topic. <laughs> I, I was in a bonsai class yesterday. I thought, well, maybe. And I said, no, I don't think bonsai is going to make it here. But the um, volunteer coordinator um, will it can be a one-time thing, it can be a series. I've often thought it would be interesting. Um, my background is as a copywriter, so I'm, writing's what I did a lot of. I would love to sit down with the women, especially, and have them write their story, and then have somebody who is an illustrator or an artist make their own little scrapbook that would always, so something like that could happen, so I need to find somebody who's a graphic designer. But, and that does, that would require more than a one-time commitment. But think of what your talent is, and I'm sure they can use it. Um, I think, you know, the first thing you think is your personal safety. I don't, I think you're fine. It's a little disconcerting to walk through a bunch of uh, homeless people that are, you know, they're smoking or whatever they're doing. 
and to the front door, but that's just disconcerting. I'm not going to let that get in the way of, of what needs to happen. Um, I have never felt threatened at Room in the Inn. We had one situation this past winter where a guest, something was going on. I think it was drug related, and we had to call the police on him, and, and uh, the staff handled it beautifully. Never was there a time where that person threatened me. Maybe the staff because they put themselves in the way, but. I was wondering, do you screen for mental health issues? I mean, it comes in various forms, I'm sure, but uh, does that play into it very much? The winter program, um, the screening is if we, if we think you, a person cannot be handled or you're talking to someone that's gotten off their meds and they're beginning to talk to voices, they will not be sent out. The guest house will take them, not knowingly. Um, they are, there are more mental health resources not coming on board for the homeless than there were 35 years ago. So there are some things going on and they try really hard to get them into the, those programs. Now they do screen for those issues for the residential program because they're trying to make sure they've got a chance of success. Mm -hmm. Now again, mental health, how do you define it? Some people are just slow. Some people are you know, not as smart as, as I am. <laughs> So, um, but yeah, yes and no, I guess it's a better, better answer. And as Father Strobel once told me, he says, once you've been on the street for two years, you've got street psychosis. Living on the street, as you can well imagine, um, all of a sudden you're saying things like, I really want to be here. I prefer to be on the street. Well, if that's the only place you've been, pride, all those sorts of things. So you've got to really accept whatever they say. We never ask, where are you from? Why are you here? What have you done? Um, I was doing the feet of someone a few months or two ago, and he claims, he volunteered it, he was a financial counselor who used to live in Belmead. He told me some things that made me believe he was probably right, but he had, he had really hit rock bottom. I don't know why, and I would never ask him why. But I thought it was fascinating when, when I went to Father Strobel's funeral. Janet and I just arbitrarily picked a row, and he was sitting right there in the first seat. And he remembered, my, I don't do pedicures. Let's, look, I'm using that term very loosely. <laughs> it's more washing of feet, but, um, but it has been, um, it, it has been and continues to be um, a spiritual plus. Very selfish. Tell me about something about how it was in Morocco. In the, oh, Morocco? Yeah, in the earthquake. Hey, it was how fun. That, how you survived. I just came back from three weeks in Morocco and spent that night on the streets along with all my other Moroccan friends. <laughs> um, it was fine. I've never been in an earthquake. Uh, those in our group who live in Los Angeles, Japan, and all that said, yeah, that was a real earthquake. Um, we stayed in these old Riyadhs and their old homes had been retrofitted for hotels and there was something falling on my face, plaster, that kind of thing. And I was trying to wake up and figure out what was going on. And our, our guide was by this time going around beating on doors saying, grab your passport and get out. And I thought, well, passport, that's interesting. He said, yeah, if you've got your passport, I can get you out of any jam. But if you don't have your passport, we're going to have problems. At that point, we didn't know how bad it was. And he had family in Marrakesh. We were about as far from the epicenter as Marrakesh was. Uh, he had family in Marrakesh that slept out in the streets two or three nights. Now, I will say this, and it, it kind of bothered us. The reports we were getting were very sensational. Um, and I don't want to take anything away from the suffering of the people in Morocco, but a lot of it happened in the High Atlas Mountains. And the High Atlas Mountains are where you're getting native people that are living in 
mud huts. Let me just that kind of thing. Um, and they um, they did suffer a lot of loss. Uh, Marrakesh, when I got there, you could you could see damage, but it was not like rows of it. It was just here's a house, and we might have to walk another ten feet in, in the Medinas to see another one. Um, and on our drive from where we were that night to Marrakesh, you know, we stopped for breaks and talked to people, and everybody had a lost story. So it it. And this is another experience we had. So what, what the Moroccans were doing to help out, they were volunteering. People would go to supermarket parking lots. We talked to some that had driven down from Casablanca. That's a three-hour trip. And they would open up the cars and go in, and people were buying just carts of stuff to send up there. They'd load them into these cars, and the people would drive them up to the mountains, High Atlas Mountains. Mm -hmm. At that point, it was about two hours. So we did that and loaded it in, took pictures of our stuff, loading it in. And I said, you know, in the U.S., they would never get to <laughs> They'd drive off and you wouldn't see them again. I have on my phone, the young men who didn't speak a lot of English, uh, on my phone sent us, uh, really sent our guide and he forwarded uh, videos of them loading all our stuff on mules. And it was, it's, it's great video. I just, I have no idea what they're saying, but I'm seeing stuff. I, it was our stuff and other stuff being loaded on mules because they'd gone as far as they could go and taking mules up into the mountains. So it was, I, I love Morocco. And so what was happening was my family here was probably more worried than they should be. And I shouldn't say that because I could really make it up as a big, a big story in my trip. <laughs> um, and they depend on, on tourism so much. I, I, you know, in the company I was with, they said nobody canceled, but our, it's a company that a lot of travelers use, so I think they knew um, and, but our guide was in touch with the office, uh, and I think it's about our guide, I mean, I liked him and loved him anyway, but he had three children, a wife in Marrakesh, that he was on the phone with while we we're waiting for aftershocks in this little town. He would not leave us until, until we left the tour. We wanted, he said, go home, spend the night with your family. Don't stay here at the hotel. Um, but they were not sure that another one wouldn't happen, and he wasn't gonna leave us by ourselves. Mm -hmm. he, and, and his wife, and the kids stayed on the streets two or three nights and his kids were having problems. So one night after dinner in Marrakesh, he surprised us by loading us onto his little van and taking us to his apartment. Mm -hmm. So we went and met his kids. And I, I will say this, just understand what I mean when I said it. That man, and uh, he and his wife ought to go in the business of making and selling babies. Those kids were darling. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the nine-year-old could speak English to us enough. I mean, you know, you, um, but that was, we, we wanted people to know about the quake, but we didn't want our families to be that concerned. My sister was freaking out. I, in fact, my phone was not working. I was having trouble keeping it charged. <laughs> so I got, on the, I got out and I said, Janet, just wanna let you know before you hear it, there's been an earthquake, we're fine, blah, blah, blah. But my phone is not staying charged, so I'm off the air. Would you please let anybody else know? And my brother, no. And I turned the phone off. Um, I'm going to have a chat with Apple. I think I've got a 10.30 appointment on Monday morning. <laughs> but we didn't need, need it. Um, yeah, we stayed out until about 6.15, 6.30. And the office in Marrakesh knew there were aftershocks, and apparently there were. I didn't feel them. Um, uh, we just went to the hotel. To, uh, had gone up and locked our rooms when we had madly run out. And, you know, kind of checked it over. It's fine. The, the, the office in Marrakesh checked those hotels, and they were okay. You would see cracks in the walls, but it would be cracks in the plaster that covered whatever building materials by them. So I never felt threatened. 
our guide did not for a day or two when we would go out walking made sure there was open air above us just in case and the medinas because the medinas you're like this uh, we had to change our plans some bahia palace which is the old palace um, suffered some significant damage it was closed we was, we were going to go to a water museum which sounds dull but it was kind of interesting and we couldn't go because they had had to commandeer one of their generators to take up to the mountains. Um, I don't understand why the king did not accept more, I don't think, he may have eventually, but he was not accepting help from the U.S., Germany, Britain. I asked the guy uh, if, if he was from Saudi and some others, I asked the guy, is that because we're not an Islamic country? He said, I don't think so, I just really don't know why. Uh, Germany kept a crew on the on the tarmac for two days waiting for a yes from the king to come in and they finally just sent him home. <laughs> so um, there are probably a lot of lives that could be saved, but that's, um, like I said, nothing lasts the good times and the bad times. Debbie, when you were here, I remember you were involved in everything that was going on at Otter Creek. Like, yeah, it may, uh, may have looked like it. <laughs> I, I felt like your name was, and I, I think I remember you writing for a newspaper that called Yushi? Um, no, that was the learning tree. Do you remember the learning that tree? That was the learning tree. It had tree. a very short life, but for about a year, yeah. Yes, you published the learning tree. And people tree. did stuff. I mean, did, I remember Janelle Shown did something, and she was in high school, and I said, man, you can write. And she can. She, I, she was on my staff at Lipscomb. But yeah, I, just, I ran across some old copies of that some so, years ago. So tell them what the learning tree was that you started, and you did some other things that you have not mentioned? I don't remember, but uh, <laughs> other people would write articles. Uh, but I did do a newsletter to Room and the Involunteers. Yes. And that may be what you're thinking about because, uh, and this was before internet and emails and all that, because I was very interested in them understanding the peopleness behind what they were doing. That these were just not, you know, 12 dirty men. Mm -hmm. But here's what you found out, here's what you found out. I remember Jim, um, Oh my gosh. Huh? No, 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 no. Um, worked at Lipscomb for years. So any, anyway, um, it'll come to me. I get a lot of things 20 minutes after I need them. Jim Thomas? Yeah, that was it. Jim Thomas was in a uh, some kind of burger joint at uh, in Knoxville. And all of a sudden he hears, Jim, Jim. And it was this guy who wrote the letter eventually. He was in, he was in Knoxville. And this, he, he was still homeless, <laughs> but he came over and was hugging and loving on him. So, you know, you, you, want, you, you just never know what good you're going to do or what bad. Um, but yeah, we did a newsletter to kind of connect the people with that. I think that, especially getting started, and I understand the reticence in working with homelessness because you hear a lot of stories that I don't think are quite true. Some of them are, some of them aren't, but um, trying to make it sound like you were hosting your neighbor, which is what Charlie Strobel would do. Jerry has come. There was one night when somebody got a little unruly and broke a window, I think. Yeah. Remember that story? I think it was after my time at Otter Creek's well, program. Ed I don't Rucker, think it happened at Otter Creek. Ed Rucker put his big oh. bear hug around him until the police got here. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's kind of like faith. Faith is not a closed glass jar. You know, things happen. Yeah. Thanks, Deb.
I will, um, I'll tell you one night, I spent the night here, and spent the night here several nights with Room in the Inn, but we had women at that time. And it was, um, well, John, John Thweet was one of the people, and I won't tell you who the other two were. But anyway, uh, they put the mattresses, so they put three across and one at the bottom, so I had to sleep in the middle. Uh. And about midnight, uh, and so then we have all the, guy, the women and men uh, around and everything sleeping. About midnight, the guy who was sleeping at my feet said, Paulette, Paulette. And I said, what? And he said, I can't sleep. I'm going to go home. Now, whoever thought you came to room in the end to sleep, I don't know who that was. <laughs> and then at 2 a.m., the guy next to me, on one side of me, says, Paulette, I can't sleep. I've got to get out of here. I'm going home. He gets up. At, John Thweed has slept through the whole thing. We get, yeah, because he's deaf. And the next morning, we get up, and he says, where are so-and-so and so-and-so? And I said, oh, one left at midnight and one left at 2 a.m. Well, you had to, one of the things you had to do was get everything put up. And you had to mop the floor because it was the kindergarten room. We were at the old building. And so you had to mop the floor and you had to get breakfast and clean up from that for all these people. And John Three mumbled more that morning. <laughs> <laughs> he was doing everything. Well, and I, that reminds me, Melanie Loki did breakfast every morning. I mean, a big breakfast. Um, fresh biscuits, the whole thing. Yeah. You, know, you remember things. I'll flashback. Anyway, I just always thought that was funny 